Lord, as we talk about and seek to understand our part in at least part of the cosmic conflict, I pray that your spirit will guide our time and direct it, that we will utter your words and hear you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, This is something that I've thought about for some time, and then to actually put it down was another issue. Um, A quotation that I assume you recognize, unselfishness, the principle of God's kingdom, is the principle that Satan hates. Its very existence he denies. From the beginning of the great controversy, he has endeavored to prove God's principles of action to be selfish. And he deals in the same way with all who serve God. To disprove Satan's claims is the work of Christ and of all who bear his name. I think it's a reasonable focus on the cosmic conflict. Who is the selfish one? That's the question that needs to be dealt with. When we, and I'm not going to take time to do it because Brad and uh, Dorothy have done this, of going through the texts in the Old and New Testament of what God's intention was and what God's plan was. God clearly wanted a relationship with his creatures. Um, we could use uh, Jeremiah thirty-two thirty-eight, and there's others we could use. They shall be my people and I will be their God. He's talking about Israel when they would obey him because that's what he was after. When we get to the end of the conflict, Revelation 21, we've been there with the text. See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. Basically, what he created in Eden now is, without the possibility of it being destroyed. Now is. We could take other texts if we wanted to, but uh, not going to at this time. And so this morning, as a kind of overview, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about Luke 10.18, a verse that strikes me as very crucial. And then I'm going to talk about our participation in the cosmic conflict, proclaiming the gospel, responding in obedience to God's love, and bearing the burden of others as three aspects. Please, I'm not implying that's it. But those I see as uh, crucial aspects uh, that uh, are for our time this morning. Now, Luke 10, 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. How were you taught that this, what were you taught that this verse meant? What was your basic teaching? What did you hear? Satan and his angels were dispelled from heaven. Angels being dispelled from heaven. That's what I was taught. How many of you were taught that? Now, that's, of course, a true fact. They were dispelled from heaven. But is that what's being said here? I know this is used as a proof text. I know Ellen White uses it as a proof text for that point. But is it? And so... If we go back to the setting uh, from Luke 10, the Lord appointed 70. 
He sends them on ahead of him in pairs where he himself intends to go. This is as he is moving toward Jerusalem to the final week in his life. He is on his way. And he says to them, the harvest is plentiful. He has said that several times. He says it again. Labors are few. Talk to the Lord of the harvest about the problem. And then he sends them out, verse 9, cure the sick and say to them, here's his core message ever since Mark 1 and Matthew uh, 4, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Okay, that's the message. That's what they're to do. That's what they go out to do. And I want to argue that Christ is anticipating in this the cosmic conflict. Notice, he says, see, I'm sending you like lambs in the midst of wolves. I mean, it doesn't even sound like a conflict. It sounds like a feast for the wolves. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, conflict, Go out into the street and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. We're getting into conflict. We're getting of conflict. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Notice, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. We have acceptance. And rejection. We have lambs and we have wolves. Now, they return rejoicing. Um, they are ecstatic. And they say, you know, even the demons responded to us. And for the young Jew at that time, it's hard to get anything higher than that. I mean, the thing they were most fearful of. And the demons were responding to them. And Jesus responds by saying, uh, they've just said, uh, Lord, in your name, even the demon, they return with joy saying, in your name, even the demons submit to us. That's what was just said. Christ responds to that. And what does he say? I watched Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning. How does that respond to demons being cast out? Are you with me? Are you with me? Now, are we going to say, well, Christ was just a scatterbrain. He said whatever came up, Brad. I was just going to make a comment in, in Daniel, you know, where it's describing the enemy seeming to be victorious in one of those prophecies. It talks about the prince of heaven being trampled on and even the stars of heaven fell. Yep. And so that wasn't describing them being kicked out of heaven, yep. but it was more of a defeat or perhaps being cast out of the minds of the people. Yeah, thank you. Very good. And then he goes on to say, see, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions. We have nothing about snakes and scorpions. Is this literal or is this metaphoric? Snakes and scorpions. Maybe both. Yeah. Didn't Jesus just get done saying we're going to send you out uh, like lambs to wolves? Yes. So I think it's continuing the 
We're continuing with the metaphor. Who are the scorp- Who are the snakes? By and large, in Scripture, they're Satan, aren't they? By and large, the snakes are metaphors of Satan. And he goes on to say, see, see, I've given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Clearly, that's metaphorical, uh, the snakes and scorpions. And nothing will hurt you. Okay? He's talked about what they've been doing and the power he's given them. Then he goes on and says, nevertheless, do not rejoice at this. No big deal. You cast out uh, uh, demons, it's no big deal. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's a big deal. That's huge. You with me? That's a big deal. Now, I have no inspired writing for what I'm going to ask you next, but I hope it's an inspired imagination. While the 70 are out, what is Christ doing? Now, he's in the Middle East. Was he playing backgammon? No, I don't think he was playing backgammon. What was he doing? You suspect he was praying for them. How many of you suspect he was praying for them? Any question in your mind that he was praying for them? And so when he says, I watch Satan fall from heaven like a flash of lightning, that's occurring while Christ is doing what? What is that occur? What's going on when Christ sees this? He's praying for his disciples, right? He sees what they're doing. And as they heal the sick and announce the gospel, the kingdom of God is near. What happens to Satan? He comes down. He is, comes down like lightning. He is being destroyed. Are you with me? I think that takes the text in relevance much better than going back to when Satan is cast out of heaven. If you want to say it's related, then that's fine. Yeah. I was going to ask you if um, the first I watched Satan fall from heaven is related to uh, advising the disciples, look, at Satan's here on earth, so you're going to have to deal with snakes and scorpions? Or were they coming back so elated because they had healed and cast out demons that there was the possibility that they may assume that it was their power and not God's. And so Christ is saying, hey, wait a second. I watched Satan fall from heaven. Don't let this go to your head. Oh, I think that's an important point. I hadn't thought of it, but I think it's a good point. Uh, I think the possibility of arrogant pride exists in every male. Yeah? Uh, Does that mean then that uh, Satan up to that point was in heaven? No. Uh, heaven has, biblically, there's three heavens, right? There's the place of God's abode, there's the starry heaven, and there's the firmament. Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the firmament of this earth. And I, th- I think what it's saying is that Satan's high and mighty sense of who he is, and I want to take this further in just a moment, has been cast down. Other question or comments? In the back, Mike. That's always been a curious thing to me when 
when Satan was really cast out of heaven. Do we have proof that he was not in heaven at this time? For example, when Christ rose from the from the grave, he told Mary and others not to touch him, that he hadn't yet ascended to his father. Then we look at Revelation and we see the slain, we see, you know, chapter four, the doors open to heaven, and we see this symbolic lamb that was slain. And I've wondered if that's not really when the war in heaven took place. That at that point, Satan was cast down to heaven. There has been a tendency to think that Satan was cast down to heaven earlier on, when, when, even when the um, Adam and Eve were created. That seems really cruel to have them down here where where this Eden, you know, Eden was created and all. Do you have any information that that proved that? I don't have any information you don't have, Mike. My understanding, and uh, this is based, I think, almost exclusively on Ellen White. Please, I'm not using that as authority. I'm just giving it where my understanding comes from. Is that until the death of Christ, Satan had access to angelic hosts. In Job, he shows up in heaven. And uh, he, you know, there are uh, there's verses in Ephesians that at least indicate to me that the angels who did not go with Lucifer did not fully understand the issues and that he had access to their ear until he had Christ crucified. And that was it. Brad? I just wonder if, uh, if, if maybe we emphasize the physical location more than the meaning you know, of this. Yep. I mean, Sigby talks about, you know, how he fell from innocence in heaven, and then mm-hmm. at the cross he fell from influence. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, in Revelation, you know, it describes he fell from heaven, yeah. and then he's on the earth doing all this stuff, and then he falls into the abyss. Yeah. Um, you know, it, is it more important where he's cast out of physically, or whether he's cast out of the minds of angelic beings? Good point. Good point. The He, at his influence, his ability to do anything is certainly um, uh, seriously impaired. And I see this as Christ setting this in the setting of the um, cosmic conflict. You understand there's nothing subtle about me. But I want you to notice Jesus' words. And where I'm going to go is say these are cosmic conflict words. And uh, at least that's what I see very, very powerfully said. I watch Satan fall from heaven. The misrepresenter is being debased. I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. You, the disciples, are being lifted up. Rejoice your names written in heaven. Where Satan has been cast out of. And Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit. Father, have the Father has revealed them to infants. He's, I skipped some, obviously. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And what we have there is the entire Trinity playing a role in what's going on. Christ turns to his Father, rejoices in what his Father has done, and he is being inspired by the Holy Spirit in what's going on. And I think what we have here is 
a miniature of the cosmic conflict, but I want to take it a little further than that. What about the timing of this display of divine power before or after Calvary? When? When? Before. It's before. When was Satan finally with the battle over Satan between the cosmic conflict finally won by the heavenly forces? Whether you want to say Gethsemane or Calvary is not, is not an issue I want to take at this point. But that's going to come. It has not yet come. Okay? But what's happened? Christ has given his authority prior to the final overcoming of Satan to his disciples and his disciples are casting out demons with that authority. You with me? How does the demonic world look on that? Jerry. I'm just wondering, and this is a question of ignorance, what was the understanding of the disciples of Satan? The, dis- the notion of Satan in the Old Testament is not well worked out. But there was notions of demons that was very clear to them. But the, the general understanding was God was the perpetrator of everything. Yes. Oh, y'all. Yeah. Everything, good and evil. Yes. So these, this is really revelatory. This is very revelatory. No, I appreciate that. The issue to the disciples. Yes. I hadn't thought of it, but I, I like that. Yo. Yo. What is the implication? to the angels of truth as they see this happen. You see, it's one thing for them to watch the commander of the armies of God cast out demons. But they are watching the buck privates do the same thing. What does this say to the angelic host? Are you with me? I mean, that has to, it seems to me, that has to have been an an incredible event. It foretells what's going to happen. It promises the utter and complete destruction of evil. God is in charge. I mean, the final conquest hasn't occurred yet. The penultimate conquest hasn't occurred yet. We're still in the beginning stuff. Chris? In comparison to earlier things in the Bible, the Old Testament mm-hmm. the events, there were prophets, individuals who did things. But here, you actually have a playing out of 70 people going out carrying out these deeds and I think in terms of what it means to the angels of truth this is sort of a demonstration of people acting for God with God's authority oh yes yeah and how well are they getting the message well they don't know it all yet (laughs) of the little bit that they got how well did they grasp it 
on the final trip to Jerusalem, what are they arguing about? After the resurrection, just before the ascension, what is the big question? Who's going to be the, you know, is it, you're going to set up your kingdom now? They haven't gotten it yet. You know, he's doing his best. And the same power has been given to us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, they were to cure the sick, proclaim the kingdom of God. We are to heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom of God. Please, I'm not trying to limit it to medical. I think we're ta- it's talking about all of the acts that are done to raise up the hope and the dignity of people, whatever that would be. I think it would include Isaiah 61 and uh, all of the stuff that's prophesied of Christ. As we obey, the powers of darkness fail, fall to earth. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit gives us the desire, the ability to obey, which causes us to rejoice. We rejoice. Jesus rejoices. And God rejoices. That is the natural consequence of doing what the disciples did at that time. Okay? I just love this quotation. Somebody read it for us. Raise your hand so Brad can give you a... When Jesus is making experiments in human hearts through the exhibition of his mercy and abundant grace, he is affecting transformations so amazing that Satan, all of his triumph and boasting, all of his confederacy of evil, united against God, and the laws of his government, stands viewing them as a fortress impregnable to the sophistries and delusions. They are to him an incomprehensible Do you see yourself as a fortress impregnable to the enemy? As an incomprehensible mystery to the enemy? Yeah. When you speak of obedience, is he talking about a higher level of obedience than you typically think of? I think we typically think of obedience as Trying to avoid sin, mm-hmm. but you're talking about a kind of proactive obedience. We're talking about it, yes, out of obedience that comes out of love and a relationship. That that's, I long to do that, and I just rejoice in that. Thank you for cl- thank you for clarifying. Yeah, but that's who you are. That's who you are. Would it change the way you look at life? Would it change the way you live? If you saw yourself as a fortress impregnable, as someone who is incomprehensible to the enemy, would it change anything? It certainly does for me. It certainly does for me. I can stop crawling around as somebody who's just lost it badly and realize, no, there is more. There's far more. Use a silly example. It's like being star- starving, sitting in a 
Oh, whose buffet do you want to take? Who's got the best buffet around? And you just sit there starving. When here are these tables of wonderful food. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. You see, causing Satan to fall, the disciples as they went to village to village, sharing the gospel, healing the sick. Hence, forward, Christ's followers were to look upon Satan as a conquered foe. Upon the cross, Jesus was to gain the victory. Was too. Hadn't done it yet. For them. That victory he desired then to accept as their own. See, the demons were not able to say, Hey, disciples, I don't know who you are. Jesus hasn't gotten the victory yet. We're not going to obey. They couldn't do it. Because of the power he had. And I'm not going to read the next one, uh, but it talks again about the love of Christ, which is part of the cosmic conflict. This is the truth of the cosmic conflict. I like the term that, um, um, that, that Sigvi used relatively early in Revelation, referring to the enemy as a misrepresentor. I find that just so helpful. And as the enemy deals with us, he doesn't confront, oh, you mighty one, I don't understand. He's never approached me that way. I don't know about you, but he doesn't treat me that way. He makes me believe I'm too busy. Uh, he makes me say, well, look, if I were to talk to someone, I would be invading their privacy. I would annoy them. They would be angry at me. I have to protect myself. I, I wouldn't be able to answer their questions. And my reasons for not can go on and on and on. And I, you will see First John 2.16 and the comparable from Mark uh, multiple times. You know, the desire of the flesh, I want you to think I'm good. The desire of the eyes, I want them to like me. Uh, pride, you know, I, I have to do this right. And I don't know how to do that right because God would be in control and I don't know what he'd do. I might not like it. And so... I, 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 the enemy backs me off, or at least tries to back me off. You see, trusting in God is to take what Christ said very seriously. And the clock is going fast, so I'm not going to read or have someone read. But you all know the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And Jesus starts out by saying, all authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Where do you go for a second opinion? Where do you go? There is no second opinion, right? All authority says make disciples. Trusting God, and what I've taken here is a quote from Desire of Ages, and I've just broken it down in a series of steps. When we have a realization of our weakness, I saw some of you withering under the notion, fortress, impregnable. Okay. A realization of our weakness. Now, most of, at least I, I don't see myself as really weak. I just see myself as somewhat weak, which is false compared to the cosmic conflict. When we have a realization of our weakness, we learn to depend on a power not inherent. Nothing can take so strong a hold on the heart 
as the abiding sense of our responsibility to God. He has called us. He sends us. Nothing reaches so fully down to the deepest motives of conduct as a sense of the pardoning love of Christ. That's awesome. We come in touch with God. Then we shall be imbued with his Holy Spirit. That enables us to come in touch with our fellow men. You have the sequence? We approach God. He's reaching down to us. We touch him. The Holy Spirit comes in. And then we can come in touch with others. Then rejoice that through Christ you have become connected with God. Members of what? Members of what? The heavenly family. You are members of the heavenly family. While you look higher than yourself, you will have a continual sense of the weakness of humanity. The less you cherish self, the more distinct and full will be your comprehension of the excellence of your Savior. The more closely you connect yourself with the source of light and power, the greater light will be shed upon you and the greater power will be yours to work for God. The more closely, the more you approach, the more you desire, the more it occurs. Rejoice that you are one with God, one with Christ, and with the whole family of heaven. Rejoice. As you rejoice, it becomes more real. As it becomes more real, you rejoice more. As you rejoice more, it becomes even more real. And what you have is a circular staircase that's up. And it's the opposite of a circular staircase that goes down, which leads to discouragement and depression. It is God's alternative uh, to that. Are you with me on this? Any questions, comments? Okay. So, <clears throat> trusting God, we've talked about uh, participating as God's children who heal and who share the good news. What about during temptation? Uh, James 1, 14 and 15, but one is tempted by one's own desires being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And that sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. Notice the steps. Our own desires tempt us, lured and enticed. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin leads to death. And we're down to the core issue in the cosmic conflict. Whom do I trust? Whom do I obey? When tempted, the temptation is always to distrust God and to trust self. Selfishness, that's what we read at the beginning. God isn't coming through the way I expected him to. I must take care of it myself. Temptation. Now, We have the misrepresenter wants to push us with the flesh. By flesh, we're talking about the physical, including the hormonal, the mental, including the habits of the past and the natural inclinations. 
we're talking about our history, we're talking about our environment, all of that that builds up certain desires within us. It's flesh. And Paul says, live by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Spirit, flesh, conflict. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the Spirit. What the Spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. They're opposed to each other. To prevent you from doing what you want. In each of us, at the time of temptation, the cosmic conflict is on. Now, to me, that's helpful. That's helpful. Now, this is really a battle for our thoughts. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's quite a statement. That's quite a statement. I think most of you are aware I take care of people with HIV, which today, uh, the medication's rather straightforward and simple. The problem is lifestyle because uh, they have far greater risk for heart attack, stroke, cancer, and so forth. And, you know, they will tell me, but I get this in my head and I can't get it out until I do it. Fill in the blank. It can be eating, it can be alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be sex. And I could go on into the safe addictions. It could be work, it could be re religious obedience, it could be intellectualism, it could be any of the addictions that we trust. We get it in our head, I have to do it. And what Paul says is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. How do you do that? How are we going to do that? I will share with you what I do with my patients uh, when they tell me that particular sequence. And so I say to them, when I am in battle with the enemy, these are Christian patients, how many times do you think I win? And, um, you know, most of them want to be, think I'm, I can do something. They say, oh, maybe 90% I go down. 50% down. Eventually they get to 10% and they're desperate. Oh no, you're way too high. You mean zero? Yeah, zero. I don't ever win the battle against temptation on my own. When God fights the enemy, how many times does he lose? Oh, he never loses. Okay. Who are you going to trust? Someone who never wins or someone who never loses. All right. That's the setting. And then I'll say to them, now, of course, I can't read your thoughts, but if I could read your thoughts, and I would say to you, if you don't think about a pink polka-dotted parrot in the next 10 minutes, I'll give you $100. What are you going to think about? And those who aren't wiseacres will honestly say, pink polka-dotted parrot. So how do you not think about a pink polka-dotted parrot? Well, it's simple. You think about the yellow canary. I mean, it's a pretty stupid illustration, isn't it? <laughs> but it makes the point. Now, <clears throat> when I ask God for victory over temptation, I'm being tempted. I say, God, 
The enemy's after me. He's misrepresenting. He's tempting me. Will you take care of him? Do I have to talk God into doing that? No. When do I have God's victory over that temptation? The moment I ask. So I can, what am I going to think about? What's my yellow canary? I'm going to start praising God for the victory I already possess because I already possess it. It's a faith statement. It's a faith statement. But by faith, I will praise God for the victory. Do I check on the temptation? No. I simply praise God for the victory I now have. And I will praise him until this annoying misrepresenter goes away. What are you going to do when he comes back? Exact same thing. Exact same thing. I refuse to allow the lies of the misrepresenter to sit in my head. I want to bring every thought captive to Christ. Does that make sense to you? I mean, it ends up to sound so simple. It is simple because I don't have to do it. God will do it for me. All I need to do is trust him. And by praising him for the victory, the thought leaves my head and I have other thoughts to think about. And I can go on. And it really works. Uh, I will give you the testimony of my patients for that matter. Okay. You see, at the moment of temptation, I must decide whether or not God is trustworthy. Is God's love adequate for my needs at this moment? Or must I take care of it myself? That's where the battle goes. The longer I think about the temptation... That's more that I am being enticed by it. You know, um, many of you have known me for some time. I was much heavier. And uh, when I was seeking to lose weight, I'd be sitting at my desk. I'd eaten about an hour and a half ago, say. And I get this sense, Harvey, you're hungry. Physiologically, I am not hungry. Well, the next thought would be, well, why don't you go look in the refrigerator? Does anybody have a clue what would happen if I went look in the refrigerator? The battle is over. See, that's enticement. That's enticement. And the longer I think about it, the more likely I am to go. And so the thought has to go. I have to identify that God is adequate. You see, and the Mark 4 with the parable of the sower the seed among thorns, what was it that blocked growth? Cares of the world, the lure of wealth, the desire for other things. I'm busy with my life, God. I don't have, you're not filling my needs my way. And then the first John 2.16 that we've already talked about. Again, the same uh, quotation, God's making these experiments. This is a little longer of it. Um, of human hearts through the exhibition of his mercy and abundant grace. He is effecting transformation so amazing that Satan, with all his triumphal boasting, with all his confederacy of evil, united against God and the laws of his government, stands viewing them as a fortress impregnable. They are to him an incomprehensible mystery. The angels of God, seraphim and cherubim, the powers commissioned to cooperate with human agencies look on with astonishment and joy that fallen men 
Once children of wrath are through the training of Christ, developing characters after the divine similitude, to be sons and daughters of God, to act an important part in the occupations and pleasures of heaven. See, that's who you are. Sons and daughters of God. Developing characters after divine similitude to act an important part in the occupations and pleasures of heaven. That's what's going on. That's what God is doing in your life. Okay, we have the third section that I want to discuss, and that's suffering for others. Revealing God's love you're all familiar with. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 12, 5, and 10. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. The kind of relationship we are to have with each other. Now, our example, Christ, somebody read the Matthew 9.36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 10 has the same notion. We read that earlier. That he had compassion on them. He saw their condition. Uh, They were not motivated or guided by anything higher. And so they were harassed and helpless before the enemy. Somebody read Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are yet without sin. So the picture, at least that I see, is our compassionate Lord, and there's other verses we could put with this, came and experienced our suffering, our burdens, so that he could be the one who guided us aright, so that he could get the complete victory over the enemy. Core to the truth that we're talking about is that it's God's love that draws us to him. To listen to some people claiming to be expositors of God's love, um, they talk about his punishment. To listen to them, you would think, the sinner has more fun than the Christian. They live a better life. And, you know, you've got to threaten them so they won't do anything naughty. That's not what scripture says. Somebody read Romans 2.4. Do you not realize that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay. Now, what I hear this saying in the setting that I have placed it, it is as we are kind to others. Paul in Galatians talks about bearing one another's burdens. As we do that and thus reveal the kindness of God, it's what leads people toward him to totally appreciate his love and to appreciate his goodness. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So, 
the Son of God, clearly Christ, His love is what Paul trusts. He loves this by faith in the Son of God. What's the basis of his faith? The basis of his faith is God's love manifest in the life of Christ, the death, ascension, uh, resurrection and ascension. That he loved me and gave himself. The adequacy of Christ's gift is what Paul's faith is based on. I want to suggest that's an adequate basis. That's a good basis for faith. That Christ can be trusted because of what he has done. Another point that we can make in this, if somebody would read John 17, 20 to 23. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. What's Christ's prayer for? What's he want? Unity, right? They to be one as Jesus is with the Father. Jesus in the Father, the Father in Jesus, we in Jesus. That oneness, that unity. And that unity would involve, it seems to me, bearing the burdens of others. Uh, you can't be one with someone who is a burden, who's burdened and just pass it off. You have to respond by sharing in their suffering. Um, I don't mean by bearing their burden. Oh, I'll pray for you. That doesn't count. That's not burden bearing. That's turning them off. Um, it's kind of cruel, actually. Um, I, I don't mean you shouldn't pray for them. But by and large, the statement is not helpful. Now, we bear with love and humility, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And this is what God wants us to clothe ourselves with, with this patience, with this love. Now, how does this happen? Somebody would read Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. I don't love this person. I don't know how to love this person. How do I come to love the, to me, unlovable? What is the divine mechanism for doing that? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit pours God's love into our hearts. When we have God's love in our hearts, we will love as God loved. You aren't going to love Him by trying any more than you're going to overcome temptation by trying. But you can ask God to give you a loving heart and that's something He wants to do. And thus, it is something 
that he will do. Now, the misrepresenter's lies is, of course, saying this guy is a thorn in your side. He's just not going to help you in the things you care about. Uh, he's useless to you. He does, you don't desire him. Ignore him. And so we have to choose between God who says, I will give you a heart of love, and the enemy who says, treat them all like thorns. That's what our choice has to be. Now, when we think about the cosmic conflict and our role in it, somebody read Second Corinthians five seventeen to 20. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. So we are who? What's our relationship in this? We're ambassadors. We're ambassadors. What's the function of an ambassador? To represent rightly the kingdom for whom they are ambassadors. Um, those of you who enjoy newspapers, and I do, I don't read a lot of them, but I do read the letters to the editor. And being half Armenian, I do look for the Armenian and the Turkish letters. And the Turkish counselor in Los Angeles is always defending in the LA Times, Turkey. The Armenian ambassador is defending the Armenians. I mean, that's their job. That's their job description. That's what we're called to do. We cannot be silent. We cannot not respond. You see, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we proclaim the gospel. God rejoices and Satan falls like lightning. In response to the call and power of the Holy Spirit, we trust the truth of God's love. We become a fortress impregnable to the misrepresenter. As we bear one another's burdens, the world will know of God's love. Thank you very much for coming.